This New America NYC event took place on Thursday, February 11th, 2016, in collaboration with Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, New America, and Arizona State University, and is titled, Do Silicon Valley and Ancient Greece Share a Secret Recipe for Innovation? And features Eric Weiner, author, The Geography of Genius, A Search for the World's Most Creative Places from Ancient Athens to Silicon Valley, and Dio Olapade, author, The Bright Continent, Breaking Rules and Making Change in Modern Africa. Uh, thank you so much for coming. It's a pleasure to be here with Eric. I really enjoyed this book, and I love New America. And so I'm delighted to see so many people out here in a freezing night in February um, to talk about a topic that um, is sort of historically relevant and super contemporary, which is what makes um, for genius, and how does one even seek to define the term? Um, as a, an author myself, I'm actually very interested in process, and I think a book that ranges so widely both in time and in place is actually the ideal framework for talking about process. As a reporter, as a researcher, as a combination of both, this book is um, a travelogue, and it is also quasi-academic with a fairly hefty bibliography in the back. Um, and so I'm actually very curious how you went about um, distilling for us such a vast body of information, whether it's about music theory or about classical art. Um, tell me how you wrote the book. Ah, that was not the question I was expecting. <laughs> That's very good. Never underestimate me. <laughs> no, I'm, I've got that. <laughs> um, I basically operate on several levels. And one, as you said, is the level of the traveler. Um, you know, my, my role models when I was growing up and reading were Jan Morris and Paul Theroux and these travel writers who were like super observant of places. They would go to a place and cut through all the noise and get to the essence of the place. And that's what I try to do on one level. But you're right, it is quasi-academic, and I take that as a compliment, the quasi Absolutely. part. And I read, I read an awful lot. Um, so I would have one file called Research that just kept growing and growing, several hundred pages long, and that consisted of reading academic papers on uh, geniusology, which is the study of genius, and create, or creatologists, the study of creatology. And there's an awful lot of academic research on what makes us creative and what circumstances make us creative. And I read all these papers so that my readers don't have to because they're dense. And I read a lot of history about these places, starting, and I will say this with a little bit of pride, a place from a place of ignorance about most of them, um, which I think is a good place to start, and then just devouring everything I can get on the history, and then trying to fit the two together, try to fit the travel with what I'd read and what I'd absorbed. So if there's a connection between, say, alcohol and creativity, which by the way there is, uh, which place I, yeah, which place did I travel to, which place epitomizes that? Um, is it, you know, the Scottish Enlightenment, which is sometimes called the Scotch Enlightenment, or is it, uh, you know, is it Athens where they would drink wine in their symposia? So it, um, a good question, and it was, it was a meshing of all this. Was it all simultaneous? I mean, I, I had, when I was working on my book, I had something that I called the serial killer wall map. Um, where I just had all these post-its and strings connecting things. And it was a process of reporting and writing simultaneously. 
Did you travel and then come back and then travel and then come back? Because you covered so much ground. Yeah. I did. Uh, I, would go to, I would go to sometimes two or three places and come home and regroup. Okay. And I would read before I went to a place, but I would try not to overread. And by that, I mean, I, I didn't, it's very tricky. You wanna, you wanna not go to a place completely ignorant. You wanna know something about it, but you don't wanna be colored by people's previous impressions. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually tried, in, in terms of the travelogue part of it, I didn't wanna read what a travel writer a month ago wrote about the place. I would read about a writer 100 years ago wrote mm -hmm. about it, that worked. Yeah. So let's run down the list for those who are listening. Where did you go? We've got... We have some familiar places. Mm -hmm. I went to, uh, this is not in chronological order, is that okay? Sure, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So familiar places to most readers, like ancient Athens and uh, Renaissance Florence, and some medium familiar places like Edinburgh uh, in the 18th century, the Scottish Enlightenment in Vienna during the musical period and also during Freud's Vienna. Uh, and then some uh, pretty unfamiliar places, I would say, to most readers, not all, such as Hangzhou, China in the 13th century, which was a true golden age, and Calcutta uh, in India in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, and then bringing the book home to Silicon Valley in Vienna, I forget Vienna. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's super interesting what you describe as being familiar versus unfamiliar. It seems like a, actually quite a normative presumption, actually. Um, I will say that I have been to everywhere but Edinburgh, which now is on my list. Wow. Um, and okay. so I find that to be, it's like an interesting point of conversation. So, so the, the idea of genius, um, it's, it's a noun, right? It could refer to an individual or it could refer to a, a, a concept of genius. Right. Um, and I'm curious that that interplay is actually woven throughout the book, and you have, you never define genius in any particular way, but I love that it's something that has the capacity to be about an individual and a capacity to be about something more macroscopic. Like a place. Like a place. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, if I made you pick, would you, would you, the, the lone creator as genius or the enlightenment as a genius period? Like how would you describe or define well, I'm, what I'm, you mean? I'm a place person, first of all, so I would choose the, the place as the genius. But um, the definition, um, I'll tell you what I don't mean. Is that a way of answering the question? Sure. Sort of, uh, I don't mean just smarts and high IQ. You know, that's one definition we have for the word today, is a genius is someone who's really smart, has a high IQ, but, you know, there are people with IQs of 220 who don't create much, you know, and don't produce much. And um, so I, I, I don't think that being a genius is being a know-it-all. I think it's actually being a see-it-all. It's seeing connections that others don't. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite definitions is from the German philosopher Schopenhauer, who said, talent hits the target no one else can hit, genius hits the target no one else can see. Mm -hmm. And I would, so it's that conceptual leap, but I, if I can improve upon Schopenhauer, I would say <laughs> that then once you hit the target no one else can see, everyone else has to see it. Because mm -hmm. if they don't, you're just some crazy person hitting invisible targets, and they're like, yeah, sure you're hitting a target. So it has to, there has to be a sort of social verdict around it, a consensus that, yes, Einstein's a genius. He wasn't just some crazy guy with bad hair. And Steve Jobs, if you believe, was a genius. We have to all more or less agree on it. Um, it's a social verdict, you yeah. know. Well, so I want to take this, that statement in two directions. The one is to look at place, which is really, I mean, this book is about geography. We're grounded in place. Um, 
And place means context. Place means environment. Right. Place means nurture on some level. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And so that's one strong theme in the book is like the environment in which one is operating. Right. A city, it takes a city to make a genius, I believe is something I'm quoting from you. Yes. And so if it takes a city to make a genius and place really matters, um, it's all context. And so to me it seems, and this is the second piece of where I think you're going in talking about this issue, is um, what happens when people lack access, potentially, to the ingredients of genius? What happens if Bill Gates doesn't have access to a computer at an early age? Um, how does resource scarcity um, and how does environment sort of support someone, even when the sort of resources that, are, that might traditionally support genius, um, when those are unavailable? Then they don't become geniuses. I really believe that. Um, that we, I, what I'm trying to get to do, people to do by reading the book, in addition to having a good time reading it, is to think about genius differently. To stop thinking of it as you know, looking in the night sky at a shooting star and going, wow, that was so beautiful. And, and I wonder where it came from, and I wonder if there'll be another one, you know, and look at it more as a garden that you cultivate. And if you don't have the seed, which is the genetic, genetic material, you're not gonna ha have a genius. But if you don't water the seed and you don't have the right soil, you're not gonna have a genius. So we get the geniuses that we want and that we deserve. And it's a, a, we're all in it together, you know? It's not, we, we love the myth of the lone genius. We love to see the movie about Steve Jobs or about Mozart and to think that they are completely divorced from their time and place and like the shooting star, they just appear in the night sky. And it's much more of a flower growing in the garden and we're all gardeners in a way. We all play a role. Mm -hmm. Mozart needed his audience in Vienna, right? I mean, he, he needed them prodding him and pushing him and paying him because he was a huge clothes horse, I don't know if you know this, and he really, he, he made a lot of money, but he spent more, right. he gambled, and he bought clothes, and so he needed that, he needed the money, and he needed the appreciation, and he needed someone saying, give us better music, mm -hmm. give us a better iPhone, we say today, and we get Steve Jobs. Well, that's interesting, because just on the point of Jobs, I mean, Jobs was someone who gave people things they didn't know they wanted. Right, it was very sort of dictatorial form of genius, and it is a design principle. But once they um, got it, they loved it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. And so part of it is about storytelling and narrative and stories we tell ourselves, whether it's that there's a lone wolf genius and that's the narrative, or the MacArthur Foundation sort of tells a story about individuals and we believe what they say. Um, and so the extent to which the story that is told defines the trajectory of genius was really pronounced for me when thinking about these unsung heroes that you were able to unearth. I'm thinking of the poet in China, Shen. I'm thinking of Verrocchio, who is not mentioned in Leonardo's diary, but was a seminal figure both for Michelangelo and Leonardo. These people are erased from history. And so this reinforces this basic logic that victors write history and that history is extremely normative and that it's actually very subjective. But um, how do you think storytelling and narrative about what's familiar, about what seems logical and what we already know defines how people think about genius? And how have you, in writing this book, sought to correct or shape this maybe misperception about who deserves credit? Like Verrocchio and, and a handful of others, more than a handful, um, Nanarol Mozart, Mozart's sister would be a good mm -hmm. example, are what yep. I call invisible helpers. They are behind the scenes. If it takes a city to raise a genius, these are members of the city. These are citizens. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Aspasia, Pericles' wife in Athens, played a huge role, and they don't get credit 
And, you know, Steve Jobs gets more credit uh, than Steve Wozniak because we like the myth of the lone genius. Um, right. But I think that the operative word here is mythology, actually, and it's not, it's not just a negative term. You know, I'm, like the way Joseph Campbell used it, mythology, myths can inspire us. So I was in, in uh, Edinburgh trying to figure out how did this little dirty city on the edge of the world for about 50 years become like the place to be, the place that produced modern economics and sociology and the steam engine, among other things. How did it come to be? And I was having a drink, because that's what you do in Scotland, with a Scottish uh, academic, and he, he said, well, the Scots believe their own mythology. So, I mean, it's actually helpful in a way to believe, like myths motivate us too, um, as long as they're based on something and as long as they're not counterproductive. So the myth of the lone genius is, is helpful to some extent. It, it's what gets someone out of bed in the morning to try to do something. But I think it becomes detrimental if, if we think it's, the, it's all that matters, if we sort of ignore all these other factors that I write about. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does, and I hear you. I want to push back a little bit, in part because I do think narratives... Um, you can't be what you can't see, right? And so if the mythologies and the heroes are all from a particular background, a particular geography, a particular strain of thinking, a particular ideology, particular politics, a particular geography, which in the great sweep of human history has largely been concentrated in the West, then those people who do not participate in those mythologies, economies, strains of thought um, can feel left out. And so I'm curious how you feel um, even the choice of, of um, places where you've gone looking for genius either reinforce or cut against this kind of, let's call it like a Western logic around who deserves credit for modern history. Well, I mean, I'm starting from that place of, you know, what, what are, again, we get the geniuses that we want and that we deserve. And ah, but we who, right? That's the biggest question. Right. That's the simplest sentence, uh, but it's a big one. Unfortunately, there's no such thing as an undiscovered genius. Mm -hmm. There really isn't, um, because it takes two. It takes the, you cannot separate creativity from the recognition of it. And I guess what you're saying is the acknowledgement of it in history, that right. history is written Has by the victors. Has been very biased. Um, so I made, I, I did make an attempt to broaden our idea of what creative genius was and to get out of Western Europe. I could have easily have written the entire book without going to Western Europe, and people say to me, why didn't you go to Amsterdam and write about the masters of the 17th century? Why didn't you go to Paris of the 1920s? That would have been more time in Western Europe. So uh, I made an effort to get to uh, India and to China where they have different ideas about what creative genius is, and where at least the Bengal Renaissance in Calcutta is largely invisible, at least to Western readers. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I regret having not, I, I was toying with the idea of a chapter on the Muslim and Arab Golden Age, and a place called the House of Wisdom in Baghdad around 800 to 1000 AD. But I traveled to these places, and it was not safe and probably still is not terribly safe to go to Baghdad. I've been there before as a war correspondent, but this is a different. Mm. I didn't want my obituary to read author dies while researching book on genius. Um, <laughs> so, it's um, a fair point. It's so, a fair point. And Timbuktu may be on your mind, and, and it was a place of great scholarship. And two years ago, I don't think it was terribly safe to go to. So, um, you know, I wish I could have included 
It'll be a 2,000-page book that you're holding in your hands very easily yeah, if you include all these places, but your point's well but taken. But I do think there is a kind of political work in the editorial curation of these places. I mean, I, but again, yeah. one... It's a social verdict, one and who's on the yeah. jury, you know? Right, yeah. right. I think one, my belief, and if I may interpose it into this dialogue, is that genius is universally distributed, but it is not universally recognized, right? And so that's sort of in the spirit of which I asked that last question. Um, but, but I also can I interject? But please. I think the recognition is crucial, and we're responsible for that part. Sure. And I would say it. You know, it takes okay a city. It takes two to. It takes the creative act and the recognition mm-hmm. of it. We focus almost exclusively on the creative act, and we don't pay that much attention to the recognition of creativity. Yeah, and okay, so a couple of thoughts here. I think um, there is like this strong belief that there needs to be something sort of tangible and that others need to recognize it for something to be deemed valuable. Um, but I also think it's, it's sort of like, where are you taking the baseline, right? Um, if you are someone who is, for example, um, trying to make music when you lack access to instruments, um, maybe you should get more credit. Or if you're someone who is, um, you know, you go to war with the army you have, I guess is the point right. I'm trying to make. Um, but also, I mean, in terms of the universal distribution of genius, I noticed that all of the cultures or many of the cultures that you uh, profile in the book have a word for a kind of um, je ne sais quoi, right? You've got um, guanxi, if I'm saying that right, in China. You've got jugad in India. Um, you have sprezzatura in Italy. Um, in my own book, I coined a term kanju, which is this sort of specific creativity born of African difficulty. So across geographies and cultures, you have this this idea of some extra special ingredient, some yes. special sauce yes. that is place-based, but that is actually quite universal if you think about the linguistic variations here. Um, and I find that really like encouraging on some level, that everyone yeah. recognizes this, this theme you're trying to tease no, out. Absolutely, I mean, I think creativity is largely a universal phenomenon. There are some cultures that don't particularly value creativity, a few, but most cultures, there is a value in creativity, but there's a slightly different definition. Mm-hmm. So in Eastern Confucian cultures, they tend to focus more on, is this innovation useful? Mm-hmm. In the West, we tend to focus on, is this innovation new and novel and uh-huh. radical? And so there's different emphasis, but I think right. that creative impulse exists across pretty much all cultures. Right, right. Um, I'd like to just hear from you a little bit about the ingredients of genius. On the one hand, this kind, there's this, this argument about constraints. Right. producing innovation, like with one arm tied behind your back, you are thus um, driven to come up with solutions that would never be possible if you had two hands or what have you. Um, and then there is the sort of, um, I don't know how you put it, like the sort of financing, the sort of resource-based theory right. of genius. And you talk about this in Venice where money actually defines outcomes. So is it a lack of resources that drives creativity or is it having access to resources? It's a reformulation of my question, but both are present and I'm curious right. how you reconcile those. They don't seem totally at odds, but... Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, I think there's, there's a sweet spot between resources and constraints. Um, if you look at very wealthy places, like in the Persian Gulf, um, they are awash in resources, 
but they're not very creative, to be honest. And that's because they don't have to be, right? It's mm -hmm. called the oil curse, mm -hmm. is the term. And it's like, you've got this natural resource you're sitting on, so you don't see a lot of creativity coming out of Kuwait or places like that. Um, so constraints are hugely important um, to creativity. You know, Robert Frost once said that writing free verse poetry is like playing tennis without a net. You know, we need the net, we need something to work around, and there was a group in the 60s called the Olympians out of Paris that would try to write novels in constrained ways. They, one man named Georges Perec wrote an entire novel, 300 pages, without using the letter E. Now that's a little gimmicky, but if you think about it, if you think of creativity as a response to a challenge, then we have to have those challenges. Um, we can't be so wealthy as a country or as individuals that we're not challenged, but nor can you be a completely starving artist, which is another myth, because if you're really starving, all you're thinking about is getting food. Most right. geniuses historically have come from the middle or upper middle classes, mm -hmm. and I think that makes sense. Sure, I mean, sure, I think that's right, and uh, I'll put the example on the table of um, like mobile payments, which may be an older story um, in the context of development economics, in the context of technology, in the context of developing countries, but in a situation where economies are cash rich and credit doesn't exist and banking systems don't exist and all the things that we would take for granted here in the United States, like having an ATM at one's disposal, wipe those off the table. Then you have these kind of um, highly dynamic proto-currencies in Kenya in particular that then get used, um, become the building blocks of a kind of new kind of economy um, where you have mobile payments, you have cash transfers, but you also have these, a huge architecture of innovation that comes from the situation of lacking a traditional financial system. Um, I think that's a good example of where, um, yes, Western geniuses have come from the middle class, but indeed it's also true that um, resource constraints have produced entirely new disciplines and ways of thinking about economic organization um, that I find really powerful and compelling. Um, so the other piece of what you've just talked about, which is the ingredients or infrastructure, let's call it, of genius, um, the book doesn't dwell overly on the state. Um, I'm less we interested are, in state than culture. Nor am I, right? Okay. But, but I do think it's worth mentioning because I do think um, that it's table stakes for innovation today in Silicon Valley that there be a strong Wi-Fi connection, electricity, and all of the other inputs that come from a stable um, political environment, that come from um, a stable political system, that come from you know 4G, wireless, all of these things that are ingredients that maybe sometimes are unacknowledged. So, and these are things that have come out of, um, in the United States at least, like a commitment in earlier generations to support, for example, internet technology. Um, and so I'm curious what role you think governments play in all the disparate environments, whether historical or more contemporary, is a, a sort of key behind the scenes actor in driving innovation. I think largely they can get out of the way is one thing. And I'm thinking of governments and I'm thinking of the church, for instance. Some, so let's take the Let's example. say institutions, maybe, not even just yeah, governments. Yeah, institutions is sure. a good way of putting it. Um, so let's take Scotland in the 18th century. So it's, you know, in the early 1700s, it's, it's really backwards by any standard, and it's hugely illiterate. And the Kirk, which is the church in, in Scotland, says, well, we're going to have a literacy campaign so people can read the Bible, the good word. 
and it's very effective. And all of a sudden, it's a hugely literate society, except they're not just reading the word, they're reading other words, like Milton and Shakespeare, and the church is like, no, no, we didn't mean that. Um, but they, they let loose, it's sort of an inadvertent effect, they let loose this creative impulse. Uh, the literacy campaign was not designed to make people poets, but they became that. And the same thing happened in Calcutta when you know the British came in and say, you know, we've got to, these people have to learn English, you know, thinking they would get a nation of, in fact, there was one uh, member of the Raj who said, you know, we set up this education system so we could get a nation of clerks and instead we got a nation of poets um, like Tagore and others. So I think often the institution's involvement is not like we are going to get from A to B, from not creative to creative. They have other intentions, but the, the byproduct is, is creativity. I think often, um, and that happened in Scotland, that happened uh, in Calcutta. Uh, the church played a role in Florence in the Renaissance in that at least the, the objects of art were religious, right. you know, even if the impulse wasn't mm -hmm. religious. Um, but you know, I was in China researching the chapter in Hangzhou and I had one foot in 13th century China, one foot in 21st century China, it was a, quite a straddle. And uh, you know, I was watching in my hotel room CCTV and there was a panel discussion about the innovation gap in China. There was sort of collective hand-wringing. What are we gonna do? Everything is made in China, but nothing's invented here. And then one of the panelists spoke up and said, we need to have a government innovation program the way we have a government high-speed rail program or, you know, or uh, building highways. And everyone else harumphed in agreement that this is what China needed. I mean, it's one step away from saying you need to schedule spontaneity. It's not quite that, but it's almost there. And- um, We'll innovate from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Exactly, every Monday. Exactly, so, um, and, and lots of governments, you know, I was just in Google on the West Coast, and, and they have a parade of government ministries from around the world coming through, trying to learn what the secret sauce is so they can bring it back home, and it, it doesn't work. And the Google people I was talking to were like, they're government ministers, they're not, this isn't gonna work there. So um, I don't think institutions can dictate creativity. I think they can inadvertently help, they can get out of the way, um, they can provide some resources so you're in that sweet spot between a starving artist and a gluttonous artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you, you call this like sort of an enabling environment. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, especially because I, I really do believe this point about even distribution of capacity for genius, like where resource constraints or simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time, whether the wrong time at the wrong place or the wrong time at the wrong time, you know, um, how these things affect people's ability to achieve. Um, I will ask a little bit more for just a thought on like this concept of risk taking. Um, and again, I think this is all relative, like relative risk is, is the only kind of risk, right? Um, and so for people who have nothing to lose, and, and you talked a little bit about, um, how should I put it? Um, individuals who see opportunity and have a higher tolerance for risk, potentially being more innovative, um, versus like highly stable, highly structured environments. And, um, just to put it in some context, I'm thinking of um, this quote about Nigeria and Lagos. <clears throat> so in Lagos, there are no choices, but there are countless ways to articulate the condition of no choice, right? And so the, the, 
the, the basic state is one of risk-taking. And I'm curious like how you sequence that idea into, I don't know, a logic of who, who can be successful and who can be called a genius. I mean, ultimately, it is uh, a risk. It takes gumption to achieve creative genius. It, that, that's absolutely true. But I guess one of the points of my book is that gumption is not only happens at the individual level, but it happens at the societal level as well. And I think a good example is Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. Mm -hmm. So now we look back and go to visit the Sistine Chapel and we say, wow, it's amazing. And Michelangelo was obviously such a natural choice for that job, but in right. fact, he wasn't. At the time, Pope Julius II, who was a Medici himself, in fact, um, you know, wanted, had this job, I need some ceiling work done. He put out a bid, essentially, and he looked around, and he chose someone in Michelangelo who was mainly a sculptor, right. who had not done much painting, and certainly not, not on that scale. So he, it was a non-obvious choice, and he placed a big bet on that non-obvious right. choice. So, so the risk was coming from the patron, you know, as well as from the genius. And, you know, look, the obvious equivalent today are the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. What, what risks are they taking? They're sort of the Medici's of Silicon Valley. So it's not only the risk that the genius takes, it's that we all take. Who are, which horses are we betting on? You know, it's the horse, it's also who we're betting on. That's such an interesting point you make about investment in, in the Valley, because I do, you know, I think um, it's all about relative risk, right? If you've got a big, like, pile of money, a, a tranche of that doesn't seem as, um, it's, there's not as much daring to involve when you're sitting on a $4 billion fund as when you've got working your last with the couple. Net. You're working with right. the net, a big net. Right, so I'm curious, just in the context of Silicon Valley, like what do you make of the kind of, let's talk about impact, right? Like um, the environment of someone, like being, the, the requirements for someone to be called like a genius, like, oh man, like awesome, killer app, like that's gonna solve a bunch of problems for a few people and we're gonna fund you and that's gonna seem awesome. And the kind of like bubbleism, I guess, for lack of a more like thoughtful word for thinking about it. Um, I like it, bubbleism. Like is, is clearly, is clearly a part of the story of Silicon Valley today. And so the question is, um, is someone getting a ton of money or a ton of investment really a signifier of genius? And how has that entire economy sort of, how, how much can we trust those signals, essentially? Well, let me ask you a question. Is Steve Jobs, was Steve Jobs a genius? I've heard he is. I love my iPhone. <laughs> All right, let's ask it. Was Steve Jobs a genius? Raise your hand if you think he was, or raise your iPhone, okay. Raise your hand if you think, if you think no, he was not a genius. Okay, that's pretty much, and some people just didn't vote, clearly. Um, they're, they're on their iPhone checking their emails, so they were not able to vote. Right. But that's pretty much what I, I asked, I've asked, that's been like my cocktail party question when I was researching the book and on book tour, and it's almost always 50-50, except in Palo Alto, where it's like 100-0. Or but, if he's met Waz. Yeah, exactly, and, but I think the, the point is that this is what we care about now, and so we, so Steve Jobs, by at least half of us, is considered a genius. Um, you know, have have you heard of Thomas Ades, A-D-E-S? Great classical composer, contemporary composer of classical music, but he's not a Mozart. He's not a Mozart because largely, I think, we don't value classical music the way they did in 18th century Vienna. Now we value, value convenience. These things, right? So. I don't think we should be surprised that we have a Steve Jobs or a Wozniak today, 
and they had a Mozart back then because it's what we care about. And if we were all as a society to decide, hey, we really care about classical music or whatever, then those are the geniuses we would get. Do you see what I'm saying? I do, and it's actually, I mean, we're talking about values, right? Yeah. Which, which permute widely across the globe, but are generally, um, it's like a chicken and egg, right? Like you, everyone publicly agrees that this is what we value, and so this is what we value, and so this is what is built, and we don't, don't always know, public, We don't always circular. discuss it publicly, it's just, it's unspoken often, yeah. you know? But I don't think we should be surprised by these. You know, if the question is, is Steve Jobs worthy of the title of genius, or Mark Zuckerberg, or some developer of an app, then those are the questions we should be asking. And if the answer is no, then we should do something about it, you know? We should stop funding them, and we should stop buying their apps, and, you know, and, right. and I I'm, I'm guess I'm trying to get people to think about the, that we all play a role in this, that we're all, in a way, co-geniuses, you know? Every time you logged on your iPhone or bought an iPhone, you were co-geniusing with Steve Jobs. Um, so there's a definition to get a patent. You have to meet three criteria, and I think it's a good definition of genius, too. You have to invent something that's new, surprising, and useful. Right, so we tend to focus on the surprising part, the new part. In China, they tend to focus on the useful part. But did Steve Jobs invent things that were new, surprising, and useful? Um, perhaps. Right. Um, but no, it's a very fair point, and those are those are great definitions, actually, that can help bracket, you know, how we think about these these issues. Um, I, you know, I'm still kind of snagged on this, right, because I think. Place matters, of course, right? Just as nurture matters. But you talk about ports as being this like key ingredient of, it's, it's, a, it's the analog version of the internet, right? Where a port was what brought you news from around the world. A port was what brought you inputs from merchants around the world. And so a merchant ship is like a smartphone back in the day. Today, you have a real smartphone, and those are being sold. We all you know. have a port in our pocket. Exactly. Yeah. That's a very yeah. elegant way of putting it. Yeah. And so how does that like upend the logic of a specific place? We have this incredible privilege of simultaneity if someone is online that you can see something from a million miles away that you couldn't see before. That, um, and so how point. does that upend place? Well, if you... If you believe what they're telling us in Silicon Valley, that you know they're inventing this technology and these devices that are destroying geography and you could be anywhere, then it's interesting that all these people who are telling us this tend to live in one place, Silicon Valley. Um, seriously, it should not exist anymore. Silicon Valley should not exist because the products they're producing, there's an implicit or explicit message that hey, you can be anywhere, but they all tend to live in one place would be point number one. So. I'm making a case for the prevalence of geography. And it's this idea of a port in your pocket is interesting. Um, one of the key traits, probably the most important trait for creative people and places is openness to experience. So the port has traditionally been, I guess, the, the metaphor, more than the metaphor, the avenue for being open to experience, to the outside world. Um, but you can't just, just because you import stuff or import stuff on your phone, ideas, knowledge, doesn't make you a genius. Um, because being a genius is not about having more information. Um, I mean, think about it. We all have the history of humankind in our pocket now, in a phone. We should all be geniuses, but we're not. Um, because it's about seeing connections. And 
I guess, I don't know what you think about this, but maybe it's harder to become a genius today because it's harder to see new patterns in all the, it's too easy and it's too overwhelming mm -hmm. too. Um, there's some evidence that we have, especially in the realm of the sciences, fewer geniuses today than in centuries past, fewer Darwins and Einsteins, people making those, hitting those invisible targets. And I think uh, one, ironically, one reason for that is the excess of information, the flood of information, and specialization, um, anti-specialization. I mean, it's interesting. So uh, the connection between memory and genius, I'm curious to hear about in part because people used to memorize a lot, right? I mean, the sort of um, nemonism or whatever that discipline is called. Um, Cicero would memorize these long speeches on the battlefield and he would do so by creating a physical environment in his mind that he would walk through and thereby reproducing um, vast amounts of text. And lots of people used to have to, before the printing press, people memorized everything. And it's seen actually in your, your, your section on China as a detriment, that the memorization of characters from a very young age is actually an impediment. But I feel that my memory is surely worse than it was or would have been a thousand years ago because oh, I have absolutely. a phone. Right. And so what in your research is the connection between memory and I guess performance, genius, whatever we're calling it now? <laughs> um, that was so, very funny. Okay. <laughs> so, no, 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 I remember now. Um, Socrates, bemoaned, he got a lot of things right, but he got one thing wrong. He bemoaned the, the advent of writing and the written word, thinking people's memories would deteriorate. In fact, he was actually, I take that back, he was right. People's memories deteriorated, but their intellectual capacity didn't. Right, so you know, people Greeks would have to memorize all twenty thousand lines of Homer, and there's still Muslims who memorize the Quran. Um, and I, I don't think, I, I don't think rote memory is conducive to genius because everyone in China would be a genius because they have to memorize ten thousand Chinese characters, they have to memorize so much in school. But I think um, one thing that creative people were particularly good at is remembering where they failed. There's this notion of failure indices and this idea that uh, if you fail, rather than forgetting it and moving on, you remember it and move on. Mm -hmm. A creative person will somehow index that failure, store it away, they won't get hung up on it, just store it away, and then when they're confronted with a new problem where that old failure might work in this situation, they're able to retrieve it. So memory in the sense of retrieving past failures, yeah, that, that's helpful. But just memorizing, rote memorization, I think, is not particularly conducive. I want to make sure I open it up to the audience for some questions, but I do have this, like, nagging feeling. You seem troubled. No, I have this <laughs> nagging feeling that, like, at the end of the day, what we're talking about is, like, discipline and hard work. Like, it's just doing the work. Like, because, because you care, but there's no shortcut. You don't just magically paint something amazing or compose an amazing piece of music. You actually yeah. have to work really, really hard. And so that's what we're talking about, which is not as lofty as the idea of genius. It's like, you're a grunt, you know? So what's the 10, grunt hours. versus genius? Like, discuss. Okay. <laughs> so geniuses are prolific. They're more prolific than most people, you know, but they produce a lot of crap too. I gotta be honest, right? They, not everything they produce mm -hmm. is genius. Picasso produced 20,000 pieces of art. Not all of them 
masterpieces. Yes. And T.S. Eliot once said that the, no, it was Auden. Auden once said that the, the major poet will produce more bad poems than the minor poet. Um, meaning you're just gonna produce more. And uh, Jonas Salk was once asked by a, a student, you know, Dr. Salk, how do you come up with so many good ideas? And he says, it's easy. I come up with lots of ideas and I throw away the bad ones. This is the idea of, of having to be discerning. Um, but I think you're right that it's, it's sitting down and doing the work, which doesn't mean always producing brilliance every time. Um, but there is that saying that inspiration is for amateurs, and I think there's, there's truth for that. There, there are not really lazy geniuses, um, but the hard work alone doesn't seem to be enough. I don't fully believe that 10,000 hours in any one subject area makes you a genius. There needs to be um, that sprezzatura, which is literally a squirt of something extra. Um, Very but much better in the Italian. It, everything sounds better in Italian. <laughs> in French. So, sprezzatura. Um, stick with that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, they all worked hard. They all worked crazy hours, too. I mean, Balzac was up in the middle of the night. He would grind up espresso beans and ingest them. And he would work from midnight, work, he'd work from midnight until 8 a.m. Mm -hmm. and sleep during the day. He died at age 52 of caffeine poisoning, which I didn't know you could die of. Oh it was like a shock to me. Note but to self. Note yeah. to self, do not ingest the espresso in whole okay. grain form. Okay. Um, but, but he worked hard, and they all worked hard. Um, but um, hard work alone is not quite enough, or everyone in North Korea would be a genius because they work plenty hard too. You've got you've to work in the right way. But yeah, yeah. yeah. you're right, it is, discipline is, is important. Every writer will tell you, right? Yeah. It's, you gotta sit down in the chair every day whether you feel like it or not. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming, staying, listening. We're both here for conversation. Um... Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.